everyone and welcome to episode 583 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. Happy New Year! I hope you've had a good start to the year so far. I had a lovely evening at home with friends and to be honest, I think this is the first time I've had visitors over on New Year's Eve. So, you know, we did everything from swimming to eating to Scrabble, of course, we're all kind of word nerds, Um, drinking, fireworks, everything. It was just so lovely to be ringing in the new year with friends after a very, very, very busy year. But now it's 2024 and I am very much looking forward to the year ahead. And I'll be honest, I haven't mapped out the year yet. And I know that there are some people, because I actually know them, who are of the school of thought that if you haven't mapped out your year by October of the year before, then you're stuffed. Well, I don't subscribe to that theory at all. I've literally never done it. But, you know, in the coming weeks, I am going to be spending some time with my dad on a short break and I'll be away from my usual environment. So I think I'll use that time to really reflect and figure out what I really want out of 2024. I've mentioned that this is also really the perfect time of year to be doing that kind of thing. You know, in last episode, I did mention a very special offer for those of you who want to reinvent yourselves because this is the kind of the time of year that you start thinking about that sort of thing. Now, if you missed it, you can find out more. I'm I'm not going to go over it again. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash reinvent yourself. And it's a special offer for those of you who want a step-by-step blueprint on how to reinvent yourself as a writer. But this episode, I want to tell you about the incredible offer I have for you on our Fiction Essentials series. This is a wonderful series that does a deep, deep dive into very specific areas of, well, of fiction, right? It's created by Pamela Freeman, who is author of more than 40 books, and she is the Australian Writers' Centre's Director of Creative Writing. Now, Fiction Essentials is a set of flexible courses that provide the perfect companion to your writing journey. Each one takes a deep, deep dive, as I said, into six core areas of good storytelling. You know, whether it's characters or dialogue or scenes, if you want to write scenes in a compelling way, or maybe you struggle with structure or something that people do struggle with is point of view. And I highly recommend this self-paced course if you struggle with point of view, because this will really help you understand what you need to do to make that right. And there's also, if you want to brush up on grammar and punctuation um, in a fiction context, then this is this has what you need to know. So with the Fiction Essentials series, you can just select the area that you need to focus on a little bit and and, and learn more about. So you can choose one course or two or three or all six. It's completely up to you. They are 30% off at the moment, only until the 9th of January. And you can get it now uh, and you have 12 months access. And the great thing is it's self paste and it's full of fantastic handouts and references that you can keep forever right there at your fingertips. So make sure you do check them out at 
writerscentre.com.au slash fiction essentials for 30% off until the 9th of January. writercentercomau slash fiction essentials. And now let's welcome Nat Newman. How are you, Nat? Oh, I'm great. How are you, Valerie? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Oh my God, a whole nother year. What's been happening in your world? Oh, nothing too exciting. Just um, having a few days off, which has been nice. Mm-hmm. Having a few beers, because you know I do love a beer, Valerie. <laughs> you used to, didn't you? Used to have a blog about beers and of all things public toilets. Am I imagining this? Do, do I remember this correctly? I did have a blog about public toilets, but I never blogged about beer. Really? Yeah, I did once write <laughs> many years ago. Oh, God, this is a long time ago. This is about 20 years ago. I wrote a letter to the CEO of Carlton United Breweries complaining <laughs> that there were no women in his ads, <laughs> in their ads. And uh, and their PR department did actually write back to me and say, oh, you know what, actually that's, you know, thanks for the very funny, amusing letter. It's true that we don't actually have any women out in our ads and we'll think about putting them in in the future. But I tell you what, I still don't see very many women in beer ads. No, there really aren't that many. And um, unless it's a beer like that's marketed to women. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. or maybe or, or a, yeah. a light beer or something. Yeah, exactly. Or they might be holding the beer, but you very rarely see the woman actually yes. drinking Yes, yes. I met this guy once. So randomly I met this guy um, uh, at, I actually can't remember what, but he was just so, he was such a bloke and he was like really, you know, he was really fun and he was funny and he he was so engaging and 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 we were chatting and I and I said to him, oh wow, you really should be in a beer ad. And he went, yeah, yeah, I've been in four. <laughs> <laughs> so he genuinely had been in four beer ads because oh he's that typical Aussie bloke that you see in yeah, beer right. ads. Yeah. And in one bit of the beer ads, there were four of them, him and three other guys, and they were flown to multiple countries in the world just to drink beer and be filmed. What a gig. Oh, my God. <laughs> I want to be the beer chick. <laughs> yes. There you go. Anyway, I, we, we digress. We're not meant to be we talking digress. about beer. No. We are meant to be talking about your writing tip for us this week. Yeah, and so this came out of a conversation with one of my wonderful students in our Novel Writing Essentials um, course, and we were talking about um, underwriters and overwriters. Now, when I talk about underwriters, we're not talking about in the finance industry, underwriters. Mm-hmm. So this is literally, uh, some people tend to underwrite uh, when they write a novel and some people tend to overwrite. And it's kind of handy to know which one of those you are because it kind of helps you set up your expectations for yourself. So for example, if you're an underwriter, that means you might get to the end of your novel and it's only 50,000 words and whole chunks of it are just really sketchy um, you're literally going to write in there, figure this out later or <laughs> put in notes for yourself for things that you want to write later. But it does mean you get to the end of your first draft really, really quickly. Yep. But then, of course, there's a lot of work because you need to go back and fill in all of those gaps. But as long as you know that about yourself, if you know you're an underwriter, then you know that you're, that first draft is kind of more similar to what we think of as a draft zero rather than a draft one. It's almost like a really elaborate plan in a way. Mm. that you then can go in and and fill out. If you're an overwriter, though, that's obviously the opposite. That's where people who tend to put in way too much description, whole scenes that maybe don't really need to be there, 
uh, in the final product, um, loads and, you know, pages and pages of like dreams and walks and all sorts of things. Uh, and that's too also much fine. information, too much information, but you know, nothing is ever wasted. Um, you know, all of that stuff's great for you to know as a writer, but you just need to, if you know that you're an overwriter, then you just have to get comfortable with the fact that at the end of your manuscript, where you might have 120,000 words, you're going to have to cut a lot of those seeds. But again, as long as you know that about yourself, then you can get comfortable with that idea and go, you know what? I know none of these words are wasted. I've learned some, a lot about my characters with these words. It's just not going to make it into the final cut. Because sometimes you have to, the, for the overwriters, they actually have to write it out in order for the good stuff to emerge. And if they yeah. try and edit as they go along, the good stuff doesn't emerge. Um, yeah. I think um, the author, Alison Tate, has always said that she's an underwriter and then she fills it in afterwards after she does her first draft or, as you yeah. call it, her, a draft zero. Are you an underwriter or an overwriter? I'm definitely an underwriter because I'm so excited about getting to the end <laughs> that I just kind of I zoom, 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 zoom and uh, get to the end and it's only like 30,000, 40,000 words and then yeah, you have to do the work and, and fill that out. In some ways, I, I think that's better. It's, it's easier to add things. It, it can be really heartbreaking to cut things, but that's why I think it's important to know what sort of writer you are so that you can sort of set yourself up for that. But what about the people who haven't actually written a whole novel because they don't actually know whether they've underwritten or overwritten, right? So mm. how? what are some hints that can give them an idea of whether they're an underwriter or overwriter if they haven't quite reached that milestone yet? I think if you, if you write a scene um, and your scene itself is already a couple thousand words long, uh, then that's probably a good indication that you're an overwriter because scenes scenes can be a couple thousand words long, but you know a good scene, you know these days you probably want it to be fifteen hundred to two thousand words for a nice kind of tight scene. So yeah, if you find that your scenes just go on forever and ever and ever, there's every chance that you're an overwriter. All right, great tip. Thank you so much for your writing tip this week, cool. Nat. Thank you, Valerie. Now let's move on to. A competition. This week I'm giving away three copies of something quite fun actually, Australia's Most Infamous Criminals by Graham Seal, who is the best-selling author of Great Australian Stories, Great Bush Stories, Great Convict Stories, Australia's Funniest Yarns, Great Australian Places and Great Australian Mysteries. There's a theme there, right? Immerse yourself in riveting tales of clever scams, daring escapes, captures, and the notorious deeds of our most infamous criminals. Here's the blurb. Australia's master storyteller trawls our rich history of cold cases, notorious robberies, shameless frauds, and razor gangs to uncover a cast of colourful villains, from the men and women who stepped off the convict ships and continued to ply their trade, to the dark streets of the burgeoning towns and cities over the next couple of centuries, it's a fascinating array of tales. Australia's worst serial killer is a woman from Perth responsible for over 30 deaths. There are the lolly shop murders, the world's first plane hijacking, world's first, the great bookie robbery and the black widow of Richmond. There are lesser known stories from our best known crims, including Tilly Devine, Squizzy Taylor, Iris Webber, Francis Deeming, and of course, Ned Kelly, as well as practitioners of the long con that you'll hear about for the first time. The inventive scams, dramatic escapes, and vile deeds of our most infamous criminals will keep you turning the pages. There you go. I have 
three copies of Australia's Most Infamous Criminals by Graham Seal to give away. Entries close on the 8th of January. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And don't worry if you're at that URL in the future because you're listening to this as a part of a back catalogue perhaps, there'll be some other fantastic competition there for you to enter. All right, now... Are you ready for the word of the week? It's conge. Conge. That's C O N G E. Conge. Now, it's not the Chinese porridge, which is conge. That's C O N G E E, right? So, not conge, which I love actually. It's conge. C O N G E. Now, conge is a noun and it means permission or leave to depart, a leave taking. So you might say something like, um, after the graduation, we made our conges to the new doctors and returned to the peace and quiet of the college. There you go. Conge. Try using that in a sentence this week. And that was the word of the week. But now it's time for our writer in residence. Vicky Conley is an award-winning author with multiple internationally published picture books. She is winner of the 2023 CBCA Book of the Year for Where the Lyrebird Lives. That's the Children's Book Council of Australia. Her latest books are Under the Red Shawl and Little Puggles Christmas. She has won or been shortlisted in countless awards and has CBCA honour and notable books including Amira's Suitcase and Little Puggles Song. Her title, On the Way to School, is shortlisted for the 2023 Speech Pathology Australia Book of the Year. She is now author of 11 books. Thank you so much for joining us today, Vicky. Absolute pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you because your career, your author career, has just gone from strength to strength. And I would love to unpack kind of some of the reasons why you think it's gone so well. But um, let's go back to the very beginning. What were you doing when you first decided, "Mm, I think I'd like to write books, especially children's books? Well, especially children's books started when I had my two children and I rediscovered reading picture books. So the magic of having that close connection with your child and seeing uh, in a magical little orb, I think we get transported to other worlds. Um, captured me once again. It reminded me how much I loved that experience as a child. Um, and then having that experience as a parent was something else. So I thought, oh, I would love to be a part of creating this first piece of artwork um, that very young children get exposed to. So that was the beginning of my picture book um, journey. But there's a lot of people who think that and then they don't necessarily do anything about it because when you do start reading picture books to your kids, you kind of think, oh, you know, you know, I could probably do something like that. But no one takes the next step. And you're now 11 books later and you've just won the CBCA Book of the Year. Oh, my God. So what was the thing that made you actually take the step to do it? Actually taking the step was, I think, having a career already behind me in writing. Um, So I felt like it was possible for me. I had um, a confident career and established career in writing mainly and marketing and journalism. 
So I felt probably I could do this, um, but maybe I need to go get some skills to be specifically um, honed for picture book writing. And so enter Australian Writers' Centre um, and I sought out courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and it really helped give me those foundations of what is the difference in writing for um, very young children and with illustration um, as part of your story um, compared to, say, writing a an article for a magazine. So it was quite a different skill um, and that helped make that step even easier, I think, knowing um, what the formula and structure um, and key ingredients were for a picture book. And now 11 books later, that's just no mean feat. I mean, that's astounding. So I want to talk about how you can be so prolific. But first, cast uh, your mind back to when you got your first book deal. What was it for and how did it come about? So my first two contracts actually came at the same time. That was with EK Books and it was for Ella and Mrs Gooseberry and Tomorrow Girl. And that was out of the slush pile. For those that don't know what the slush pile is, um, when you start out as an emerging writer, you can only usually, unless you have an agent, which you can't normally get if you're starting out, um, you can only submit to publishers through what's called the slush pile, which is unsolicited. um, And it means you literally send an email with your submission um, to those publishers who are accepting unsolicited. Um, uh, um, submissions and um, you send your manuscript which is your story um, and a synopsis which is a small brief um, description of what your story is about usually your writer's bio and um, a couple of other things that they may request and you send it in and hope for the best and you often don't hear back at all um, or you may hear back in a couple of months Um, so I had no idea whether I would hear back Um, and I submitted to a few different publishers at that time and had a big Excel spreadsheet of those that were open for submission and was submitting to those that seemed appropriate for my style of story. Um, And I got an email back with not one but two offers. So that was very exciting and completely floored me. Um, I had a lot of friends who thought I was a bit crazy at the time because I actually... Um, threw my job in (laughs) and put myself, um, gave myself one year, two years, I think, to really give this a go. And so I had a really clear, um, well, as much as you can with two very little children in the mix, but a clear run at trying to write um, picture books. So that, that, uh, the contracts came after a period of probably, Uh, six to eight months of doing courses and writing and really skilling myself up and finding my voice as a picture book author. Um, So that was how it began. And so you said you gave yourself a a couple of years. What plans did you make for those couple of years? What, what, What did you tell yourself? Okay, well, I've got two years. This is what I'm going to do in those two years. Because, you know, after you get your first couple of, you got um, a two book, well, you got contracts for two books um, very early, but then you don't know what happened is going to happen, right? So what were you, what plans did you make? Uh, I just kept writing. So I kept writing and I kept submitting. And um, then actually I picked up a third one, not too long after that, which was Little Puggles Song. Um, I thought, oh, wow, okay, maybe I can do this. And so I kept writing, kept submitting. 
Um, and picked up, uh, you know, then I started getting repick contracts with those same publishers and I picked up a third um, publisher as well, Red Paper Kite. So I just kept going. I really just kept going. There was a point where um, uh, it really dawned on me that the lead times between signing a contract and publication were quite long, so two years. Um, and also that this is quite a slow-burning career that I had jumped into. So I, had, I of course, went back to get other work and was consulting on the side doing journalism and photography and other marketing work. So it, uh, and now I still have a second job because, again, the reality is that picture book writing, it doesn't pay um, a lot in the short term. Um, unless you get an absolute bestseller, I suppose, that goes completely wild internationally, which I haven't done yet. Um, so there's usually always another job in the mix for artists and writers. I so in, in terms of your ideas, let's take, because um, the, the book that you won the CBCA Book of the Year um, Award for is Where the Lyrebird Lives. So let's just take that one as an example because we've got so many to choose from. We've got 11 to choose from. So let's take that um, as an example. Where did that idea form and, and how did you then go, hmm, I think there's a book in this? So the idea formed and came from my childhood experiences where a lot of my stories do come from. Um, I grew up in the country on a farm with surrounded by bush and mountains and, and the, the sea and ocean not too far away. So I had lots of outdoor adventures and we would regularly go to a place called Tarabawi in the Tarabolga National Park to go for a picnic in the rainforest and we would walk all the way up to the falls and we would um, search for the lyrebird. And it was quite a fun, exciting experience. I remember it being fun like really fun and lots of opportunity for curiosity and exploring and walking across logs that had fallen across the the river um peekabooing into big hollow, hollowed out trees and and when you saw the live bird dash across the path yeah. it was just the best and extremely exciting so i think having those um remembering as a child, how much fun something is, is what I try and bring into my stories. And that's um, what uh, why I started writing the live um, story. And it came out of returning to that location with my own children and searching for the live with them. And um, then I got home and started writing the story. So it does, the stories sort of pop into my head um, often after being in an experience or seeing something else, whether it be in another art form. And let's still use that as the example, but maybe also let us know how typical this is. What then is the timeline of, you know, it, that story's popped into your head. How long does it take you to write the book and what does that process look like? Because even though picture books are you know, there's not many words in them at all. It's still something that requires a great deal of refining and editing. So tell us about, you know, like some kind of time frame. They're each a bit different. Um, sometimes the stories flow out of me like honey and that one did. And um, so the story quite quickly gets written down um, 
And then it's just it's a matter of going back and refining and that editing process can take a quite a long time and I, I like it to take a long time because even though you're excited with your story when you read it a couple of weeks later um, and try and edit it and make it better, you can see that you have make it, had made it better. So each time I go in there and it might be, you know, from 10 to 30 times sometimes that I might go and try and make it better. The challenge of a picture book is that you only have 32 pages and you only have um, uh, somewhere between, sometimes there are 150 words up to, you know, maximum 600 words, but somewhere around 400 words. Um, so there's not a lot of words and your sentences usually have to be quite short. So it is being quite particular about the choice of words that you choose and and selecting really interesting verbs and um uh figurative really colorful language that can bring that environment and all the senses alive in your writing for a child that perhaps has never been to a place like this before mm. and one of your more recent books is under the red shawl give us an idea of what that's about but also how that idea came to you Yes, so that's come from another part of my um, world and my life. I worked for 10 years with the international um, aid organisation World Vision, both in Australia but also large time um, periods of time in Africa and Asia and often with very, very poor communities. Um, the This story, as well as Amira's suitcase, uh, have come particularly from those stories shared with me of families that have had to move from their homes and be forced to flee because of um, famine, not enough work, conflict, uh, all sorts of reasons. Um, but these, this story on the Red Shore particularly is inspired by those heartbreaking stories of when families have to flee because of conflict. Um, and in particular, uh, when I was writing up stories around Syria, and some of the, hearing some of the stories where families and children were sleeping on the ground when it was snowing with nothing. And that just tore my part, heart apart. I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine how someone could stay alive sleeping on snow um, and, you know, just maybe having a plastic sheet above them and maybe a blanket. So I started exploring more around Syria and at the time, that had out that had broken out and so I was looking around those stories and I started going back over some of the stories I'd written about um uh people who'd been displaced because of the Rwanda um situation and so that story very much came around my experience and interest um and emotion towards those situations and the story is not, um, it's actually quite a joyful story that I've written. It's, um, but you can see that the journey takes place from a child being born on the day that the community has to flee. Um, and it's very much a mother-child story. So the mother and the red shawl is symbolic of mother protection. Um, but also it allows the child to play and you discover how play and and also a book comes into the picture as part of the story, how book and play can help a child and a family um, find comfort during difficult times 
And I thought about the story a lot actually during COVID as well because, you know, reading, I think when people all over the world were thrown into this turmoil, I think books also became a place where people found comfort because they couldn't leave their homes and it was the only way that they could travel to other worlds and um, take their minds to other places. So there is, as part of this story, that ingredient that books can be quite a magic place, a magic gift that can transform lives and a learning a learning tool as well. Now, being so prolific, do you have some kind of timetable that you that is some kind of guideline for you in your calendar year? How do you write so many books? <laughs> oh, no, I wish I had some kind of calendar, but no, I don't. I just write whenever I can. Um, and having another job in the book mix, so I'm a science writer as well. I work for a, um, one of Australia's oldest uh, medical research institutes called WEHI. So I'm often writing about quite technical things or trying to translate quite technical things that I don't even understand half the time, like spatial omics and all sorts of fascinating science things. But um, so writing my picture books is a real joy and pleasure and difference in my week. And I just try and do it wherever I can amongst the kids. So often it will be me getting up early on Saturday and Sunday morning before everyone else is awake and writing for a couple of hours. Uh, it'll be often at the end of the day when I've when I can't write about spatial omics anymore because my brain is fried. <laughs> I'll, I'll write about going to the rainforest instead. So um, I do just slot it in where I can. Often uh, holidays, so and the summer break particularly, I will, again, get up early before the family and do a few hours. Um, so it's, it's just kind of plotting it in where I can. I would love to be just full-time writer and maybe I will get there. At some point, I remember talking to Sally Rippon and she said it took her, I think, 15 years to become sustainable from her writing career. So I'm like, okay, I've got, I've done seven to nine years, so I've kind of got that same amount of time, assuming it's, but she, her, look, her trajectory has been different to mine, um, but uh, who knows? So maybe one day it would be nice to just purely write and be an author. And look, in that mix is also visiting schools, so... Um, that's yes, important. how often would you do that? How, how how frequently would you do that and what age group do you typically go to? Yes, so last year I was doing it once or twice a week. Um, and so That's that a lot. Yeah, it was a lot as well as my other job as well as trying to write. So last year I didn't write as much because I didn't have as much time and I was exhausted. Um, so I'm perhaps not doing quite as many visits um, this year, trying to write more and keep my other job afloat. So um uh, age groups, mainly primary school, but also preschools and bushkinders, um, which is a lot of fun. And with that younger years, so early years up to sort of grade two, I'll do story times. And my story times are quite immersive. We usually have um, puppets and they help me tell the story with their puppets. Uh, we might have um, body percussion to simulate a rainforest storm. So there's lots of interesting ingredients that I like to bring into the story times to make it uh, the children um, to bring the to bring a life to bring to life those stories for the children, and then for the old years, sort of grade three up to grade six, I do a narrative workshop, and that's around the skills of writing, uh, narrative work. But I use quite interesting models that I've come up with myself to help 
those age groups come up with story ideas really easily and for them to use their own personal experiences to help story build. Um, so they're really fun and quite interactive and I use drama as well. So the kids usually have a good time. Uh, but, yeah, so how long am I, how often am I doing it this year? Look, it's still every couple of weeks and during book week or around book week, book week for me kind of turns into three months. So there's sort of lots of visits in the month leading into August and the month after August around book week. So it's quite busy um, but great fun and great working with the librarians and the teachers too. I learn a lot from them um, about how to interact with children and how to introduce your stories to that age group um, in a constructive way. So that's been quite valuable as well, having those relationships. Now, apart, I mean, obviously there's a financial benefit from going to do school visits, but um, that aside, how important do you think it is or how essential do you think it is for a picture book author to do such things? Because there are some people who would be really interested in this answer because they would love to write picture books, but logistically they just can't go do school visits at this point in time, whether that's because of their own children or whatever. How important is it in the mix or how important has it been for you? I don't think it's essential in the mix. I have a lot of writer friends who are petrified <laughs> talking to an audience. So for them, it's really not a comfortable experience at all. And they might do them occasionally or they don't do them at all. And that doesn't limit their publication um, opportunities. So I don't think it is essential. I think for some people, they choose to do it for an income. They choose to do it for joy. They um, choose to do it because it does, I think, help extend the reach of your stories into the hands of libraries and other children and families. Um, for me, I do it because I enjoy it um, and, and financial and because I help it, um, I believe it does help um, extend the reach of your books. Um, but no, not, not an essential thing. You've now worked with quite a few different illustrators and also at different publishing houses. Um, how have they differed from each other or, or has the experience been fairly similar, similar in the, you know, when in the way the illustrations come to life and your involvement in that? They are each different um, and that comes down to the nature of the personalities and the way that different people like to work with you. Um, also, some of the publishing houses, some are slightly bigger and some are slightly smaller. So, for instance, um, Red Paper Kite, who's a petite print um, press, they it's just one person and so it's just me working with Sandra and so it's quite, and she has an editor as well um, in the mix. So it's very close in that relationship. Um, but then I think probably my bigger publisher who has various offices and they're based out of London, um, they, I still have a very close working relationship with the editor, um, but there are many other players in the mix. So on my journey, um, I might start working out with the working, I sign the contract with the publisher, then I move through and spend more time with the editor and then I might have some time with um, the publicity team towards the end. So you do have uh, different players in the mix with a larger publishing house. So I'm very different in that when they first propose an illustrator, um, they will consult me in that um, and, or they might even ask ideas for who I might feel could be a good match for my stories and they will 
send me very early sketches of what the illustrator has proposed for the character as well. And so that creative consultation is really lovely and I enjoy that to see the character and then the pencil sketches and then the colour palette and the whole thing evolve and to for me to be able to give feedback to that's exciting and valuable, I think. Have you ever looked at something and go, oh, my God, that's just not the the, the feel at all, the, the style at all, you know, the, that's not what um, it's meant to be like at all? Have you ever done that? Not often because the publisher is so skilled in matching the illustrator and usually the illustrator has some interest in the subject matter of your book. So, for instance, Liebird, where the Liebird lives, the illustrator, Max Hamilton, she loves doing quite... Botanical is not the right word, but I don't know what the right word is, but quite botanical, beautiful illustrations of wildlife as well as um, nature. And so she loved researching and she loved seeing the photos that I had of the rainforest and her sketches of the library were so on point. Um, so no, not not sort of in terms of the the match. I think you know maybe some of the covers. I see the covers come through. And I think, oh, is that going to stand out? Is that going to jump out on the shelf? Um, is the composition quite right? So it's a couple of covers. I've sort of given fairly strongish feedback on. Um, but other than that, normally, and maybe it might be just perspectives or of a of a spread or um, positioning or a small tweaking to make sure that the illustrations and the words are working better with each other. So it's not normally major things. I've never had something and gone, oh, no, that's a disaster. I've never had that experience, thankfully. Now you have some kind of distant literary DNA with your great, great, oh, you tell me. You, I can't remember you how many greats there research. are. <laughs> I actually forgotten about that. <laughs> You've yes. forgotten about your I own have- family? Well, no, I remember sort of being, I remember discovering it um, and remembering it in my beginnings and outset as on my writing journey, but I've since forgotten about it. But, yes. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> That's bizarre. Temporarily. Temporarily. Let, <laughs> let's tell listeners what the connection is. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, my um, a very famous novel called um, Robbery Under Arms. Was Which written- became a television series or a movie, I think, starring I think Sam so. Yes, yes, I remember it. So my great, great, great something, and I can't actually remember the the lineage, but yes, <laughs> is my relation. So uncle, the, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great, 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 great uncle. So it is a lovely connection. Um, he wrote that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So yeah, it is in the blood. And look, my father was a bit of a poet and still writes things, so it does seem to be in the genes, uh, if it can be. Yes. Well, uh, you obviously got the interest from somewhere and ho- maybe there were some things hanging around your family that were kind of like, at, at least it made it possible, you know what I mean? Someone in my family did it because a lot of people grow up not, never knowing a writer, never knowing an author, never knowing anyone creative. So um, hopefully that helped. Who knows? Yes. Um, well, my, my, my grandmother was a watercolour uh, artist as well. So she absolutely introduced me to noticing the small things in the bush because she used to paint uh, orchids and oh, okay. um, and wildflowers. And I know you're an artist too, actually. I've admired some of your beautiful work. So she, um, I suppose, introduced me to that creative side of it. And then Dad, Dad had us reading, listening to poetry. He used to read to us all the time. 
Hans Christian Andersen and <laughs> Ina Blyton and um, it was always the rhythm and rhyme and sentences were always in my head and I just thought that was normal. I thought everyone had that. I didn't realise mm. that not everyone walked around with sentences bobbing in their head. Um, <laughs> so you had this good foundation but then you did a long time ago now um, the Writing Picture Books course at the Australian Writers' Centre, as you've mentioned, what did you, what did that teach you? What did that give you that, you know, um, enabled you to take the next steps? It definitely took my writing to the next level because it helped me understand the structure. I think that was the main thing that really, really helped me with. And there were great take-home packs that I still refer to occasionally. Um, and also just language and tone and information on the industry. So Judith, uh, Russell did the course when I was taking it. I don't know if she still does that. Yeah, she does. Um, yeah, but she was wonderful. Um, and, yeah, absolutely just I think the formula and structure and the way, the pagination even, um, I think people, you know, the average person wouldn't know that there are 32 pages in a picture book and that's what you have to write to every time. So, so, you know, just the little things like that that help you understand and, and completely unpack how, how do you put together this picture book um, because it's not just a story. It's sort of a, um, uh, it is a structure. It is a structure that you sort of need to piece together in a creative way, which is in itself is quite an interesting process. Now, you... Because you've got so many books to choose from, <laughs> I'd love for you just to pick a couple because I, I always think people love to know where did that idea come from, right? So maybe if you could just pick a couple from your very long repertoire and just tell us where those ideas came from. Sure. Now, that's an interesting question because they are all quite different. So Tomorrow Girl uh, came from a line. I heard in a audiobook that I was listening to um, and the line simply said, um, the girl ran into the next day. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. How can someone run into the next day? And what does that mean? And so I started sort of thinking through what that meant and thought, oh, maybe it's someone in a hurry. If someone's in a hurry, what would it be about? Oh, maybe it's about, you know, mindfulness. And so that's where that... Um, story came from and I thought what characters would be in that and so then I came up with some characters that were today um which is the child that's in the moment tomorrow which is the child that's always in a hurry and yesterday which is the child that worries and is anxious about what happened yesterday and so that's how that story came about what a great premise right another book that was quite different in the way the story came to me was the lost moustache so I literally woke up one morning and that title was in my head, The Lost Moustache. And I thought, oh, okay, so where's this taking us? So I started writing. I thought, Lost Moustache, maybe that's costumes, maybe that's dress-up day at school. Okay, so maybe it's at school. Is that the setting? What would the character be? Uh, who would my main character be? They're searching for something. Maybe it's a detective. So, again, I just always ask myself, what next? Or I wonder what if... So those questions are great leading questions, I think, to help build your character and your setting and your story. Uh, and Look, let's stay on the lost moustache for a minute. Just using that as an example, because you it's it you, it you just came up with some words and then you started thinking about it. What is the gestation period of thinking about it before you put pen to paper? Before you realize I've got something here. 
Yeah, it, again, it can be different. Sometimes I will walk along the river trails near my house and percolate that story in my head for months or days or weeks and then I'll come back and I start writing things in my notebook or I might dictate them onto my phone. Um, and so that process can be long periods. It, it may be a day, it may be a week or it may be months depending on how busy I am and and, um, and how quickly the story is kind of coming together in my head. But usually when something excites me, I'll kind of, it'll all happen fairly quickly in a matter of days and weeks um, and I'll kind of cobble that together as a story. The editing process then may take another few weeks or a month um, and I usually then will uh, share my stories with, when I'm really happy with them with my writers group, a couple of close um writing friends and they'll give me some feedback I might make some edits and at that point I'll then send it to my editor for consideration because I don't each of my story has to be submitted on its own and considered on its own and yes I still get no said to me (laughs) or large periods of silence um but I still get a few signed as well of course um so it is different that process um and look it's when I am writing a lot it comes more quickly and your subconscious works and is more active and more in play. And that's when you wake up in the morning, you've got ideas popping into your head or I might wake up in the morning and I've got the ending of my story that I haven't been able to solve. That's in my head. I remember reading that incredible book. You've probably read it called Big Magic by... um, Yes, Elizabeth Gilbert. Yes, thank you. Um, And she talks about that. She talks about how back in the day writers and artists would believe, would actually believe they were being gifted and they were a conduit from gods. And it does feel like that sometimes. It does feel like a story has kind of come to me as a little gift or a little message um, from a messenger. So, and then she will talk about how when you are actively working that writing muscle, that your subconscious does start working for you over time. Um, When you're not working, it's still working. So I do feel that when I'm really writing a lot. Um, and particularly over the summer holidays, things will come quite quickly. So that's really exciting to be and a joy to be in that mode. So before we wrap up, let's turn to one more of your books and how you got the idea, because I'm absolutely fascinated with how these ideas form, especially they form quite unusually with you. Yes. <laughs> so I suppose there's, there are two streams for me as well. So my my bush adventurous upbringing, that's one that definitely plays a part largely for me and revisiting those locations um, and visiting the farm where I grew up and down swimming and jumping off the roof of the boat into the water and having loads of adventures with my children, that helps bring back stories for me. Then the other one is my um, a lot of the travel that I've done, um, both through my work with um, World Vision, uh, but also I've done a lot of travel uh, as pure interest, so the countries all over the world. So those experiences have um, been the inspiration for books like On the Way to School as well, where I'm sort of thinking, well, how do children all over the world do this? Like how do they go to school? Or how do children, so I've been thinking through a story at the moment, how do children all over the world, and, you know, what do they put in their lunchbox? Do they have lunchboxes? How do they How do they eat at school? I don't know. Like maybe there's a story in that. So um yeah, so it's thinking through and wondering, like wondering is for me a big thing. Um, but other books that have come, other stories that have, let me just think, oh, it's a Christmas Wonder. Again, that was 
uh, a cooking experience for Christmas time. So with my grandmother, um, she used to every year uh, invite us to her house and we would make Christmas pudding with her. And so that was a beautiful central experience with the smells of cinnamon and your hands in the sticky pudding um, and, you know, smelling um, all sorts of things that you don't normally smell throughout the year. So that was what was ins uh, inspiration for that story. Um, uh, Ella and Mrs Gooseberry actually was a bit of a sad. My mother was dying at that time, which mm. was, and I lost her to ovarian cancer, which was heartbreaking um, to lose your mother and your best friend. But during that time um, I was spending um, large periods of with her and I was thinking about, love and losing someone and what does love feel like and and coming back and having to have conversations with my very young children at the time who were two I think and four about what why is granny in hospital why is granny losing her hair and um and and you know crying in front of my children and having to explain why, why I'm crying and so conversations about love were coming up in the family and so that story was about what love looks like and how it feels in your body and um, and how other people can give you different experiences to express your love. So that's that's how that story came about. So, I mean, your stories are so beautiful and you um, are, you're living the dream now. You're certainly well on your way of living the dream. Um, what then would your top three tips be for aspiring writers, people who are not yet published yet, and they're thinking, I want, I want that. I want what she's having. I want an author career where I've got 11 books. What would your top three tips be? I think go and do a course definitely helps. Um, write and write and write and write and write. Like just write as much as you can. Get a writer's journal, write on your computer, write wherever you can. That helps not only improve your skill, it helps your subconscious keep um, going and trigger to get new story ideas. Uh, it builds up that writing muscle in your head. Um, it finds your voice. Uh, and get a writer's group, I think, but choose, choose your writer's group um, wisely. And some of my writer's group have come from my courses that I've done. Um, they've also come when I've met other emerging writers at conferences like Kids Lit Vic and CYA, so they're good conferences to go to where you can get manuscript assessments and meet other emerging writers. Um, is that three? I think I've done three. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right, well, everyone, go check out Vicky Connolly's books because they're just beautiful and they're so diverse, so there's no doubt that you're going to find one that's going to be suitable for the young person in your life. And thank you so much for joining us today, Vicky. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd love to create your own picture book, a popular five-week course in writing picture books will show you how. In less than a few hours a week, you'll discover what you need to know about point of view in a picture book, structure and pace, as well as language and rhythm, finding the right voice, working with illustrators, publishing options and much more. Complete it online for ultimate convenience and receive personalised tutor feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash picturebooks. 
I hope you enjoyed my chat with Vicky Conley and maybe you're inspired to uh, write your own picture books as well too. Now I'm going to leave you with this fun fact in this episode. Did you know that the word decimate, that's D-E-C-I-M-A-T-E, decimate, shares its origins with the word decimal? Originally, decimate meant to reduce by one-tenth because what happened was in Roman times, as punishment, one-tenth of a group of surviving soldiers would be killed, so literally decimated, and that meaning broadened out to its modern meaning of destroying a significant portion. So decimate, the word decimate, originally refers to one-tenth, so there are other terms for other fractions. For example, to reduce something by a third is to tertiate. A fifth is quintate, a sixth is sextate, a seventh septimate, a twelfth duodecimate, and one hundredth centesimate. There you go. And I'm sure it goes on as well, but there's some examples of reducing by a certain fraction. Now, if you want to connect with the podcast listener community, just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join and we'd love to have you in there. If you want to connect with me personally, I share about lots of things on my personal account. In addition to writing, I share a lot about creativity and art because I'm heavily into the world of oil painting these days. Feel free to connect with me on Instagram. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O. But also, if you want to sign up to my personal newsletter where I share about what's going on behind the scenes in my personal creative studio, then you can do that over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.